Well, good afternoon, everyone. And welcome to the Cato Institute's F.A. Hayek Auditorium. My name is Dan Griswold. I'm the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato, and we're delighted that you all came out today. In fact, I think the, uh, the overflow turnout today is evidence uh, that the economy is going to be front and center of this year's presidential campaign. Uh, with the housing and the stock markets uh, tanking, with inflation and unemployment uh, rising, uh, Americans are, are demanding answers from the candidates. And so far, Senator Obama and Senator McCain have presented uh, visions and policies that are uh, starkly different on trade, on spending, on taxes. Uh, you can't say, as George Wallace did 40 years ago, that there ain't a dime's worth of difference uh, between the candidates uh, in this year's election. Our goal today is not to host a surrogate debate uh, over which candidates' plans will either save or ruin the country. Uh, neither the Cato Institute nor the Center for American Progress are connected to either campaign. We're both 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan think tanks. Uh, all of us up here today are outsiders looking on uh, to the campaign at a distance as the two campaigns unveil their plans uh, for the U.S. economic policy. We do hope to offer critical analysis that cuts through the spin and the sound bites. We want to hold the candidates' ideas up to scrutiny and to see if what they say reflects the underlying reality of the U.S. economy uh, and what we know today. And that analysis will come from two very different perspectives. My Cato colleagues Sally James and Dan Mitchell will examine the candidates' policies from a classical liberal, libertarian perspective of individual liberty, limited government, free markets. Our third panelist, Christian Weller, will speak from the progressive tradition that, in his center's own words, believes that an open and effective government can champion the common good over narrow self-interest, harness the strength of our diversity, and secure the rights and safety of its people. Our first speaker today will be Sally James. Sally has been a valued scholar at the Center for Trade Policy Studies uh, for over two years now. She has authored studies on agricultural trade, trade adjustment assistance, internet gambling, and most recently, her study, The Race to the Bottom, which examines the positions of the candidates on trade. Before joining us, uh, she was an executive officer in the Office of Trade Negotiations in the Australian government's Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, and before that, a senior policy advisor in the Australian government's Department of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Forestry. She received her Bachelor of Economics and Master of Economics degrees from the University of Adelaide and her PhD in Agricultural Economics from the University of Western Australia. Please join me in welcoming Sally James. Thanks, Dan. As Dan said, uh, at least in the trade policy uh, sphere, we, we do have fairly different candidates uh, this time around. Um, I'm going to be comparing the trade platforms uh, of the candidates, and to do that I'm relying on a, a few things. Um, the Centre for Trade Policy Studies, of which Dan and I are members, uh, has a Trade Votes web tool on our website at www.freetrade.org. And 
using that tool, you can look at the voting records of every member of, of, of Congress for the last 15 or so years. She might be more... Is it 1996 that we go back to? Yep, NAFTA. Yep, NAFTA. So, anyway, it goes, it goes back quite a while. Um, and I'm also relying on the statements of the candidates themselves and of their, their surrogates. I'll start with McCain. Uh, John McCain is a, a, what we designate as a career free trader, and that is during the last 15 or so years in the Senate, he's voted against trade barriers uh, 88% of the time and against subsidies 80% of the time. Um, and that includes agricultural subsidies. Uh, he, he did vote for the 1996 farm bill, but that was a relatively reformist farm bill that had hoped to, to phase out agricultural subsidies. Uh, and he's not voted in favour of, of any farm subsidies since then. Uh, he voted against the 2002 farm bill. And uh, although he did not vote uh, for the 2008 farm bill, he, he was vocally opposed to it. He also voted for extension of trade promotion authority in 2002 and since 2004 has voted to remove all major trade barriers and subsidies, including the Central America Free Trade Agreement, uh, the Oman Free Trade Agreement uh, and other uh, trade liberalising agreements. And, he's, and he voted to repeal the Byrd Amendment that redistributed uh, anti-dumping duties to the so-called injured parties. Uh, McCain did not vote on the 2005 Cuba travel ban, uh, and I will say that unlike Barack Obama, McCain has tended to vote against lifting trade sanctions and travel restrictions uh, on Cuba. I'll say a bit more about that later. Uh, he's not voted on any of the last seven trade-related bills presented to the 110th Congress, including the Peru Free Trade Agreement. I guess he's too busy uh, campaigning. He's been fairly, John McCain has been fairly consistent on the campaign trail in his support for free trade, saying things like, the economists that I know and trust and the history that I study says that free trade is the best thing that can happen to our nation. When we have practised protectionism, it has had devastating consequences. And he said this to a town hall meeting in a, in a depressed area of Ohio. Uh, you may know it was famously mocked by Mitt Romney for telling auto workers in Michigan that their, their jobs were not coming back, that lost jobs were not coming back. Um, his economic plans, according to his um, campaign platform, is including more trade liberalisation through negotiated trade agreements. Unfortunately, he's not said anything about unilateral trade liberalisation. And he said that we should continue to promote free trade as it is vital to American prosperity. Having said that, there has been a softening of tone um, compared to McCain's campaign in 2000. Uh, then he was asked by a mill worker, what, what will my son do now this mill has closed? And he said, uh, I would have thought you would have uh, higher aspirations for your son. Uh, since then, he's indicated that he thinks trade agreements could be made fairer uh, with better enforcement and that he's pledged federal funding for research and development e efforts in uh, sectors that have been adversely affected by foreign competition he also now advocates an expanded welfare program for workers who have lost their job to foreign competition, commonly called trade adjustment assistance, at an estimated cost of 4 to $5 billion a year. Um, I think expanding the federal government this way and creating yet another entitlement, which is sure to blow out in cost, uh, is risky and misguided and potentially could outweigh the gains from trade liberalisation if it gets big enough. So I think we need, that's something to watch. McCain also advocates uh, education reform, including school choice and investment in alternative energy technologies to replace uh, manufacturing jobs that are lost because of foreign competition. At a rhetorical level, and this might seem a little bit uh, uh, trivial, I should say, because 
really, as someone who favours free trade, the reason for someone... I'd pre- I guess I'm preferring a free trader who is a mercantilist to a, to a protectionist, but McCain does have a tendency to couch his support for free trade in mercantilist terms. In other words, he talks about the ability of American products and producers to compete with anybody uh, in any market in the world. That's not always true. And, in fact, we know that the benefits of trade come when consumers have access to products uh, that are produced more cheaply abroad than at at home. In other words, when Americans cannot compete. That's where the the benefits from trade come. Uh, Carly Fiorina, former boss of Hewlett-Packard, now an economic advisor to McCain, has talked about how one quarter of American jobs come from free trade. I guess she means exports and that free trade hurts some people. I think that's harmful rhetoric, Okay, Protectionism hurts people too. In fact, it hurts more people. Um, The other slight uh, problem I have with McCain, he often uses foreign policy links to advance or to to, to sell his trade policy message. Now, don't get me wrong, trade has foreign policy benefits. I think that's a good thing. But I I think basing trade policy on foreign policy objectives can have anti-trade effects. The best example of this is McCain voting in favour of sanctions on Cuba and Burma, which I don't think are in America's interest, primarily because of his foreign policy concerns. I think that's something to watch as well. Turning to Senator Obama now, who has a shorter record than McCain, obviously, um, and his his campaign uh, rhetoric is a bit more mixed as well. Uh, Since joining the Senate in 2005, uh, Senator Obama has voted in a free trade direction only four times out of the 11 opportunities he's had to vote on these issues. He didn't vote, he's not voted on five out of the seven trade-related bills presented to Congress this year. And the two he did uh, vote on, he voted against lifting trade barriers. Uh, He was vocally supportive, if you can believe it, of the 2008 Farm Bill an outrageous example of the business-as-usual special interest politics that Obama claims to oppose. Uh, He's also voted for Chinese currency sanctions. Uh, On the upside, he did vote for the Oman Free Trade Agreement and uh, for another smaller trade uh, preferences and and trade reductions act in the 109th Congress. But in other words, he's only rarely voted to reduce trade barriers, even though he does purport in principle to be a free trader. Uh, he, do, he rails against agreements that are filled with perks uh, for every special interest under the sun. Now, I agree that free trade agreements, as written by this administration and others, are strictly speaking, uh, they're not what I would write for a free trade agreement, but they do reduce barriers to trade and offer relief to consumers. And something tells me, or nothing in, in, in Obama's speeches suggests to me that he would be more likely to vote for the sort of trade agreement I'm talking about, which is there shall be free trade, no exceptions. I, I don't think that's what he's meaning. He opposes the Columbia Free Trade Agreement because of violence against union leaders and the South Korean Free Trade Agreement um, because of the uh, non-tariff barriers on autos. He has favoured lifting the embargo on Cuba in the past, but he now seems to be advocating changing the embargo, that is, lifting restrictions on family travel and cash remittances rather than lifting it altogether, which would, in his view, uh, give up the United States' leverage to force regime change. I think that's a shame because this is the, one of the areas where Obama really did take a policy position more in favour of free, tra- uh, free markets and international economic engagement, uh, certainly more so than did McCain. Um, as far as his campaign speeches and material, um, from his website, Obama tends to take a mercantilist view on trade. He emphasises the enforcement of existing trade agreements and the opening of foreign markets to American products. 
and this is a direct quote from his website, Obama believes that trade with foreign nations should strengthen the American economy and create more American jobs. Good. Uh, he will stand firm against agreements that undermine our economic security. Not sure what he means by that. Probably not the same thing that I, I would think. Um, people have talked about some shifting of views post-primary. Um, he does have some pro-trade advisers, and he, as I said, he now says he's always been a free trader. Um, he acknowledges in, uh, that we can't bring back all jobs lost to trade, but he wants to re uh, distribute costs and benefits more equitably and wants to make sure trade works for all Americans. Um, in, he's also made some bold statements of his own. In Flint, Michigan, in just last month, he said, not only is it impossible to turn back the tide of globalisation, but efforts to do so can make us worse off. That's a good statement. Uh, but he also focuses on investing um, in education and energy, innovation and infrastructure, fair trade and reform, and green manufacturing, and he wants to set up an advanced manufacturing fund to invest in places hit hard by job loss. Now, that might sound better than restricting trade completely, but I, but I wonder, again, about the cost and the expansion of government that would come with these programs. I, I, I do think there's been one charge of flip-flopping that I, I think is a little bit unfair. A Fortune magazine article last month implied that he'd changed his views on NAFTA since the primary race with Hillary Clinton um, from a unilateral opt-out to a bilateral dialogue in hope of renegotiation. Really, Obama had only kind of threatened an opt-out in the event that a renegotiation was not possible. In any event, this nuanced argument may be irrelevant if Canada and Mexico refuse to incorporate the sorts of labour and environmental standards that Obama's talking about in a renegotiated NAFTA. So he's still going to have to confront what he does in that event. I also think the shifting of views on trade is fairly marginal. For example, he's criticised the South Korean free trade agreement because of the imbalance between the number of cars... Uh, going into South Korea versus the United States. I, I think that's a bit silly because the uh, trade deficit in autos is going to remain whether this free trade agreement goes ahead or not. Uh, in response to a question about uh, Obama's attitude to the Doha round, uh, one of his advisers said, Senator Obama believes we need to change our trade focus from the Bush years so there is a true focus on workers, jobs, farmers, those poor farmers again, and ensuring that we are lifting standards of living overseas. I, I think Bush, at least in his statements, is trying to achieve some of these same things. Um, and I think it, it reflects maybe a misunderstanding of the trade-offs inherent in that statement. For example, um, Obama, uh, policies that Obama has proposed in favour of keeping jobs in the United States would prevent outsourcing, which would you know, one um, way of increasing uh, living standards overseas. So there are some trade-offs involved there, and it's not going to work so that all people are happy all the time. Uh, like McCain, but to a greater extent than he, he favours expanding uh, trade adjustment assistance, but he doesn't link it to further trade uh, liberalisation that, that I've seen. Uh, on the displacement that steps, stems from trade liberalisation, uh, Obama says, they may not override every single decision that we make in respect to trade, but to pretend those costs aren't there, that those costs aren't real, and my job as president is to take those into account, I think does no service to free trade. Well, he may, may be right, but again, it, it reflects a flawed view that opening trade only brings costs. Shouldn't it, to the extent that caring about trade is a president's job at all, shouldn't it also be the job of the president to take into account the costs of protectionism to consumers and to other US businesses? Um, just before I wrap up, I want to make just a quick comment about the legislative prospects for, for either of these platforms. 
um, assuming a democratic Congress, and maybe we can talk about this a bit more in the discussion, but um, I think we can guess that McCain will probably have a a harder time with his trade agreements uh, than will Obama, but Obama's not home free either because... He does face somewhat of a backlash if if the trade agreements he signs don't satisfy the sceptic wing of his party. Sherrod Brown, a notable trade sceptic, has said, he's a senator from Ohio, who has said that the Obama Obama campaign has assured him that Obama is serious about withdrawing from NAFTA absent renegotiation, and we can expect uh, them to hold Obama to that. So, okay, thanks very much. Thank you, Sally. Our next speaker is another esteemed Cato colleague, Dan Mitchell. Dan is a leading expert in Washington and really around the world on tax reform and supply-side policy. He's a strong advocate of a flat tax and international tax competition. In fact, uh, he has co-authored a book with uh, Chris Edwards that's coming out in just a couple of months, I think, uh, The Global Tax Revolution. And I've read some chapters. It's going to be a terrific contribution to the discussion. Before joining Cato, Dan was a senior fellow with the Heritage Foundation and an economist for the Senate Finance Committee. He's been published all over the place. He's a frequent, uh, frequently appears on radio and television and is popular speaker on the lecture circuit. Dan holds a bachelor's and master's degrees in economics from the University of Georgia and a Ph.D. in economics from George Mason University. Please join me in welcoming Dan Mitchell. Well, thank you, Dan. We all are named Dan here if you're a guy. Uh, I don't have an interesting accent like Sally, but I get to talk about a really depressing subject, so hopefully I'll keep your attention. I'm going to focus primarily on what's happening with the candidates on tax and budget issues. And let me just go ahead and jump right into it. And we'll start with taxes. That's the, uh, that's the amount of money the government's going to take from you and it's going to grow. That's the bad news. No matter who wins, it's going to grow. But let's look at the specifics of what the candidates are saying now versus what we think might actually happen. With Senator Obama, I'm afraid it's not a pretty picture. He wants to let the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts expire. What is that going to mean? It's going to mean higher tax rates on income. It's going to mean higher tax rates on dividends. It's going to mean higher tax rates on capital gains. Now, if you look at tax policy, what really matters in terms of economic growth, in terms of international competitiveness, is what is the marginal tax rate on productive behavior? There are certain things that all economists agree are good for an economy. You want work, saving, and investment. If you look at what's going to happen under the Obama tax agenda, we're talking about higher tax rates on work, saving, and investment. Taxes are the price that is being imposed on something. And politicians actually understand that when it serves their purposes. They're always saying, we need to raise tobacco taxes. Why? Because we want people to smoke less. Now, whether you think that's the government's business, you at least have to give the politicians an A-plus for economics. They understand the higher the tax, the less of whatever is being taxed. So why on earth would we want higher tax rates on work, saving, investment, risk-taking, and entrepreneurship? And yet that's exactly what Senator Obama is promising us by saying that he doesn't want to extend the pro-growth Uh, portions of the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts. But it's not just that. We also have what I think is perhaps the most dangerous part of the Obama tax uh, agenda, and that is the proposal uh, to extend the Social Security payroll tax to income over $250,000. 
right now with the Social Security system, the payroll tax is basically – You can think of it almost as the premium that you pay to purchase this annuity from the government. Now, it's a crummy annuity, but that's a whole separate issue. Uh, And you basically pay enough to buy what the government's offering. And so the payroll tax is only um, imposed on income up to $102,000. If you then, as Obama is proposing, say, well, we want to impose the 12.4% payroll tax on all income over $250,000, you're doing two things. One, you're moving Social Security more from a so-called earned benefit program into a redistributionist welfare program. So Franklin Roosevelt would probably be rolling in his grave. But from an economic perspective, what matters is you are talking about a huge marginal tax rate increase on work. Now, probably very few of us in this room are going to be affected by that. Maybe the big high rollers at Cato like Dan, uh, but certainly not the worker bees uh, who are toiling away in obscurity. Uh, But there are a lot of people out there who would be affected by this marginal tax rate increase. Now, many people already are worrying about the 4.6% income tax rate increase that Obama is supporting with the expiration of the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts. Imagine adding 12.4 percentage points onto that tax burden in one fell swoop we're going to go to having a higher top tax rate than France or Germany. There's no way you can have a French or German-style tax system without having French or German-style economic stagnation. And then let me add one last thing about Obama's tax agenda. He's one of the only sponsors of both the Levin legislation and the Dorgan legislation, which combined would make it almost impossible for American taxpayers, individuals, entrepreneurs, investors, or companies to utilize low-tax jurisdictions as they're competing in global marketplaces. Globalization is a reality, as Sally pointed out. And if you are deliberately adding shackles to American taxpayers who are trying to compete in global markets, you're going to simply make it that much more difficult for America to prosper. Now let's shift to McCain. Now, I actually have a lot of pressure to say good things because my ex-wife works for the McCain campaign. And if there's one thing worse than getting yelled at by a wife, it's getting yelled at by an ex-wife. But nonetheless, nonetheless, I I do feel obliged to be as honest as possible. McCain has a good agenda, but his track record suggests that we should be a little bit skeptical. First, let me get to the good parts what he's proposing. He says that he wants to extend the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts. That certainly is a very positive thing because we don't want to hit the economy with a big tax increase on January 1st, 2011. But he goes beyond that. He also says that we should lower U.S. corporate tax rate from 35% on the federal level to 25%. Now, this is one of these things where the average politician says, well, corporations don't vote. Why would you suggest something like that? Thank goodness that Senator McCain is raising this issue. If you include state corporate tax rates in the equation, the United States has the second highest corporate tax rate in the world. And actually, just in the news this week, you may have seen politicians complaining about the fact that a Belgian brewer is going to take over Anheuser-Busch. And, of course, they they play these demagogic and protectionist fears about it. Well, of course, there's nothing wrong with cross-border mergers and takeovers. But why is it that three-fourths of the time that there's a cross-border merger, the foreign company is the parent and the U.S. company becomes the subsidiary. It's because, in part, 
America's corporate tax rate is way out of whack with the rest of the world. Every single European welfare state, the places Christian dreams of America becoming, they all have lower corporate tax rates than the United States. Not only that, but the United States has the worst worldwide tax system of any country in the world. Now, Senator McCain hasn't proposed fixing that, but hopefully that would be part of the uh, equation. Now let me just say something quickly about why we should be skeptical. Schumann Events earlier this year had a little article, John McCain's top 10 class warfare tax quotes. Now, I'm sure it was probably planted by the Romney or Giuliani campaign at the time, but basically what they did is they went back and found all these quotes from John McCain basically bashing tax cuts for the rich using left-wing class warfare rhetoric against good tax policy. That leads me to think that maybe deep down he doesn't have the commitment to better tax policy. And when you're dealing in Washington, D.C., where this entire parasitic town exists off the ability to pull money out of the productive sector of the economy, it takes a very difficult fight to try to reduce the tax burden. And that means you have to have it in your core and in your soul if you're going to try to reduce the power of Washington. And so the fact that he has a checkered tax record makes me a little bit suspicious. I'm already running way out of time, so let me go through real quickly the spending side of the agenda. Go to the NTU website, one of our sister organizations in Washington. According to the National Taxpayers Union, looking just at what members of Congress have proposed what legislation they have sponsored. Senator Obama has sponsored $344 billion of new spending. That's not over 10 years. That's not over five years. That's the annual increase in spending. McCain, has he proposed to reduce spending? I wish. He has $68.5 billion in new spending. So they're both in favor of more government spending according to the legislation that they've sponsored with Obama it's a gargantuan amount. With McCain, it's a disappointing amount. Uh, in terms of the NTU vote rating on fiscal matters, again, the, the NTU rates everything. They don't cherry pick to try to make some people look good or bad. Obama gets an F. McCain gets an A. Uh, Sally already mentioned that Obama was in support of the pork-filled corrupt farm bill. McCain said he was against it. Uh, and, and certainly, if you look at what they're campaigning for uh, on the on the campaign trail, you do mostly see them both saying that government needs to do more. Well, if you look at the evidence, a lot of the problems that we have in our economy are because government is doing things. Government should be doing a lot less. So if you look at McCain's track record over the years, yes, he has $68.5 billion in new spending, according to NTU, but at least he does have a track record where he voted against some of the worst fiscal excesses of the Bush years. He voted against the original farm bill early in the Bush years. He voted against the Medicare expansion. He voted against the transportation bill. He did vote for the no bureaucrat left behind education bill. Uh, but whether or not he can be forgiven by, for that will depend on you in the audience. Let me just quickly say something about a few other issues and then, uh, and then sit down. On regulation, it's hard to know if there's a difference between the two candidates. Uh, they're both for incredibly large increases in the regulatory burden of government vis-a-vis uh, -vis climate change legislation. Uh, so it's hard to say whether one would be better or worse. Uh, I assume that McCain might be more sympathetic 
to easing the burden of things like Sarbanes-Oxley. I assume he might be more sympathetic uh, to cutting back the damaging impact of government-sponsored enterprises like Fannie and Freddie that are in the news right now. I mean, boy, talk about a case study of how everything government touches uh, uh, turns to uh, garbage. Uh, Whereas McCain, uh, whereas Obama... Uh, seems to be more sympathetic to having the government intervening in those markets. On monetary policy, not an issue where you can find a lot from the candidates. But boy, if it looks like right now we're heading back to the 1970s with stagflation and rising prices uh, and government messing everything up, if that is indeed the case, then monetary policy is going to become increasingly important. But again, the candidates aren't really being pressed to say a whole lot about that issue, so we don't really know uh, what their views on it might be. Sally's already covered the trade issue. The last thing I'll just comment on is labor policy, because there is an area where I think there is a bit of a difference. It's not that McCain has a perfect free market record, and it's not as if Obama's record is purely collectivist, but there's no question that Obama... Uh, leans more toward having the government intervene in labor markets. And one thing you can know from looking at Europe is every time politicians pass laws that are ostensibly are designed to protect workers, what happens? You make it more costly to hire workers. There's a reason why you have 8% average unemployment uh, in Europe where you have more like 5% unemployment uh, in the United States. When government imposes mandates and regulations and restrictions on labor markets, the people who are hurt are workers, especially the more marginal and vulnerable workers. And we certainly see that in Europe with not only the general rate of unemployment, but the very high rates of unemployment uh, for minority workers and for younger workers. That is a huge social problem in Europe, and I don't think that we should be traveling down that path in the United States. With that, let me go ahead and and, uh, turn it back over to Dan to introduce our final speaker. Thank you very much, Dan. Our final speaker is Christian Weller a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress here in Washington, and an associate professor of public policy at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. His expertise is in the area of retirement income, macroeconomics, money and banking, and international finance. He's also a research scholar at the Political Economy Research Institute at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Uh, Prior to joining the center, he was on the research staff of the Economic Policy Institute, where he remains a research associate. He's a respected academic with more than 100 uh, articles and papers. His work is frequently cited in the press, and he's often a guest on national TV and radio programs. And just to complete our trifecta of uh, PhDs in economics, he holds a PhD in economics from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Please join me in welcoming Christian Weller. Thank you very much. Um, I always think that when economists speak, we should try to tell a story. So I'll try to tell a little bit of a story. Um, I think the important part is that we are a critical juncture in the economy. Uh, The U.S. economy, in my view, is headed for something worse than a recession for a prolonged period of economic slowdown. Um, The two presidential candidates widely diverge on their uh, visions on how to fix things. I think Senator Obama has laid out a rather comprehensive platform that could address many of the challenges that are before us. In comparison, Senator McCain has proposed to continue policies that, in my view, have proven ineffective or at least inefficient at getting the economy back on track. Let me just skip very quickly through the background story. I think the important part to keep in mind is that we have run the economy on massive amounts of debt, consumer debt and national debt, 
uh, largely because of our trade deficit for the last few years. The way out of that are three ways. The first one we're seeing right now is default. Massive consumer default, but also the government trying to default on its obligations with lower interest rate, uh, with higher inflation and lower exchange rates. The other way to doing it is you spent more money on debt repayment, which means less money for investment and consumption, which means less growth. The third way, and I think that's the way we need to go, is faster productivity growth that's more equitably shared than it was the last seven years. The problem here is that for the last seven years, we had an abysmal record when it comes to investment and innovation, and I think we're headed for some painful years ahead of us. I think the macro policies that we enact under the new president will determine where we end up in the long run. I think the goals are clear. We need to focus on innovation. We need to get productivity growth on back on track. I don't think the last three years were just a cyclical aberration where we had low in productivity growth. I think that in getting innovation back on track means more investment in education, infrastructure, energy efficiency. I'm happy to debate why energy efficiency is in the mix, as well as stable and sustainable financing for businesses. We also have to strengthen personal income growth. And that's the lesson from the last seven years. That requires, in my view, progressive taxations. I, I will leave labor policies out for today. Happy to debate that in the Q&A. And we need a new trade agenda, one that actually has some life to it, not the one that's basically dead at this point. We need to build domestic manufacturing capacity so that we can actually take advantage of export booms like we had the last few years. We need to protect domestic innovation to make the U.S. more competitive. Our track record on advanced technology products is abysmal. Labor and environmental standards need to be part of our trade agenda to increase living standards abroad and thus demand for U.S. exports. And we need to counter rising inequality in the U.S. in order to stabilize domestic growth. We cannot longer run a debt-driven economy. Finally, we need to return to long-term fiscal responsibility. That means invest in the country's long-term economic future, address the known long-term challenges, both in infrastructure and entitlements, provide the resources for emergencies, whatever they may be, and we need to, in that regard, consider the deficits that are ahead of us, the deficits that we have, and the def- what caused those deficits, not just simply talk about deficits as if a deficit is a deficit is a deficit. Let me talk a little bit about how the uh, candidates stack up on those four areas, innovation first. Senator, McCain can best be, Senator McCain's innovation policy can best be described as a kernel of some good ideas that are overshadowed by a massive tax bill for what I consider ineffective tax cuts. Over the past few years, we saw similar tax cuts under the Bush administration, but also slow investment and declining productivity growth. Senator McCain is now proposing to add to these ineffective tax cuts by expanding at least the least helpful parts, for instance, by giving the 200 largest corporations $45 billion in tax breaks. Senator McCain is thus promoting an aggressive tax policy that has failed to stimulate innovation and economic growth in the last seven years. The other signature innovation piece for Senator McCain is his cap-and-trade proposal to limit carbon emissions. That's generally a good idea. It leaves, however, a few questions unanswered, and that's true for a lot of stuff that comes from the McCain campaign. The first one is how much of the money will be used to invest in developing, promoting new technologies? How will the energy transformation be financed? It's not just simply, like, do we have a cap-and-trade, but we also need to change things on the ground. Will any of the revenue go to to smooth the transition to a low-carbon economy for lower-income families? And will any of the revenue from the cap-and-trade proposal be dedicated to reduce the large and looming budget deficits? The effectiveness of Senate McCain's proposals would depend largely on the answers to these questions. 
These policies are coupled then with a number of smaller programs to promote research and development, new skills, new technologies, and so on and so forth. The size of these various proposals and hence their effect are not fully known yet, so it's a little hard to comment on them. Senator Obama has an innovation agenda as a combination of more investment in energy independence, support for relevant education, more support for research and development, lower cost of human physical investments through a combination of public and private financing. A big part of Senator Obama's economic agenda is, again, the proposal for cap-and-trade. Senator Obama, though, has clarified a few points on his cap-and-trade proposal that he would use funds to support the development of clean energy, to invest in energy efficiency improvements, to address transition costs, and so on and so forth. The inclusion of these additional proposals can make the cap-and-tax-trade proposal more effective and also more acceptable politically. Senator Obama has also proposed a range of economic policies to foster innovation. Don't worry, I'll talk about his tax proposal in the next section. More investment in math and science education, more investment in manufacturing, make R&D credit uh, permanent, invest in new technology and manufacturing and elsewhere, create a clean technologies venture capital fund, eliminate all capital gains on startup businesses, and invest in the next generation broadband, among other infrastructure investments. This approach to innovation has a lot of promises for three reasons. First, it addresses every input into innovation. Second, the policies are largely targeted, making them fairly efficient. And finally, it doesn't put all its eggs in one basket and one that has proven ineffective at best, as Mr. McCain does. Let me talk about personal income growth because that's a big part of the story. Senator Senator McCain's tax cuts are highly regressive. The the top 1% of income earners would see a reduction of the taxes by by 11.6 percentage points. Middle-income taxpayers would see a reduction of 3.1% or 50% less than the average tax cut. Low-income families would see even less of a reduction with only 0.9 percentage points. The only true middle-class tax cut under McCain, the increase in the dependent exemption, would leave out 101 million taxpayers under current uh, assumptions. The top 1% would receive 58% of Senator McCain's tax cuts compared to 31% under the Bush tax cuts. So I think given that I believe that the tax cuts that we've had over the last seven years didn't do their job, this one is worse. It's kind of Bush on steroids. One of the fundamental problems plaguing the U.S. economy right now, a highly unequal income distribution, which has gotten us into trouble in the subprime markets and other financial markets, would thus be severely worsened under the McCain tax plan. The opposite is true for Senator Obama's tax plan. Low-income earners would see the largest relative to reductions in their taxes, and highest-income earners would actually see a slight increase in their tax proposals. I want to get to trade and taxes here. Um, so the big part here is the discussion over trade. Senator McCain would pursue a trade agenda, as we've heard from Sally, that is largely void of labor rights, environmental standard, support for American workers and investments in rising living standards overseas. He is opposed to the inclusion for labor environmental standards, there's little improvement to the safety net for domestic workers, again, with some exceptions. He offers a few proposals to stabilize incomes for families caught in the throes of the dynamic economy. Let me talk a little about the health insurance proposal. They do little to expand coverage. They tend to offer more, health, more to healthy and higher-income earners than to struggling lower-income families. In fact, the tax increases from his health insurance proposal would more than offset all of the tax cuts for middle-income families. Coupled with inefficient support support for domestic innovation, it is highly likely, in my my assessment, that Senator McCain's trade agenda would result in continuously high trade deficit, especially non-petroleum products. The one countervailing thing i got to say here is Senator McCain's support for a cap-and-trade system. 
And if this translates into less of a dependence on foreign oil, which really is one of the driving forces that we've seen in our trade deficit, it could reduce petroleum-related deficit. But there's some trade um, problems, trade-related wrinkles to the cap-and-trade proposal that we can certainly discuss in the Q&A. On the Sen- Senator Obama on trade has pledged to support for inclusion of labor and environmental standards in future trade agreements. Senator Obama has even gone further and indicated that he consider renegotiation existing trade agreements that do not include effective labor and environmental standards, such as NAFTA. In addition, Senator Obama has proposed a number of measures to support workers hurt by adverse dynamics of trade, expand health insurance coverage, tuition support, more progressive income taxation, and expand the Family Medical Leave Act. Coupled with his support for innovation and energy proposals, I believe that there is a good chance that Senator Obama's platform can help to reduce gradually our uh, trade imbalances. Finally, fiscal responsibility. I don't know. Senator McCain's proposals are fiscally reckless. His tax cuts would widen the deficit by an estimated $4.3 trillion of the first 10 years. This is quite a change from his opposition to the 2001 and 2003 tax cuts. Even compared to extending President Bush tax cuts, Senator McCain's tax cuts would worsen the deficit by $615 billion. More important, and this is, I think, often important to keep in mind than the size, though, is the fact that the tax cuts would exacerbate the country's problems. They would double the burden of the Bush tax cuts. They would expand tax cuts that have proven ineffective in increasing investment and innovation. They would exacerbate income inequality and thereby destabilize economic growth. Moreover, these harmful policies are then supposed to be offset but unrealistically large cuts to discretionary spending, which be particularly damaging to exactly the programs that are needed to invest in innovation and support struggling families. Senator McCain's fiscal policies would thus worsen the fiscal and economic outlook simultaneously. On contrary, Senator Obama's tax proposal would improve the fiscal outlook relative to the extending the Bush tax cuts by $262 billion. Over the next decade, though Senator Obama's tax proposals would cost money, $3.3 trillion in, in, in addition to current law. Many of the tax changes, though, would go towards stabilizing the U.S. economy by lowering income inequality. Also, a substantial share of Senator Obama's tax cuts would go to investments in education, in income security, and innovation. Senator Obama's fiscal policies thus use economic resources to invest in substantial structure improvements in the U.S. economy and thereby hold a strong good promise to putting us back on track. As I said before, the country needs a new approach to economic policies. What we've had the last seven years simply doesn't work. I'm happy to debate that, but the numbers are there. We're mired in a trade deficit. We have record amounts of debt. We have a weak labor market, notwithstanding the low unemployment rate. I'm happy to discuss why the low unemployment rate is misleading. Um, so I think we, it's time for a new approach, for a change. And both candidates are pro- propose change. In fact, Mr. McCain is proposing to accelerate the policies that, in my view, have proven ineffective, whereas Mr. Obama has proposed to go in a different direction and to try, to pro- try something new. This new approach needs to realize the large structural long-term challenge of slowing innovation, rising income insecurity, and massive macro imbalances. To address these challenges, policymakers need to present proven and convincing policies. I think I made it clear who I think is more convincing in this part. So far, voters are getting a much healthier dose of economic realism from Senator Obama and from Senator McCain, but 
as I said in my remarks a number of times, we don't have the full details yet, especially not from Senator McCain, but also not from Mr. Obama. So I think it's, too, it's premature at this point to draw a clear conclusion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Christian. And I did promise uh, contrasting perspectives today, and I think our speakers have delivered. Well, now it's time for uh, your questions. And if you could, just a couple of quick ground rules. Uh, raise your hand, and I'll uh, point to you and wait for the microphone to come around. Please identify yourself and your affiliation, and please uh, hold any preorations to a minimum. Just get right to the question and, and let our panelists answer. And that way we can have a maximum number of people uh, asking questions here today because we have a very, very full crowd. So happy to take questions. Yes, right here. Cora Mikshinescu, I'm with the Department of Commerce, and this is, this is a question for Daniel Mitchell. Um, you mentioned that uh, burdensome government regulations are part of the, our current economic woes and problems, but I wanted to know, are our current economic woes due to a lack of regulation in markets, like the housing market, with the subprime mortgages and the all the lending fraud that occurred, isn't that due to a lack of re regulation? Shouldn't we have more regulation in those areas? Well, f fraud was against the law in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003, et cetera, et cetera. Passing new laws against fraud doesn't exactly do anything other than make politicians feel good. Yes, to the extent that fraud was going on, those people should be punished. There was fraud sometimes on the part of lenders, and there was fraud sometimes on the part of borrowers. Uh, but in terms of government policy, changing government policy from what we have already, uh, I think that a lot of the blame belongs to the fact that government has been oversubsidizing housing through things like Fannie and Freddie, uh, through the tax code, uh, through things like FHA. I mean, one of the biggest predictors, you know, I, I, and I don't have to run for office, so I can tell the truth. It's very refreshing. One of the biggest predictors for whether or not you're going to have defaults in housing is whether people have skin in the game. If you get to buy a house without a down payment, you are much, much more likely to default. And everything that government has been doing for years has been designed to artificially lower interest rates and to reduce any down payment requirements. And so, therefore, it shouldn't be a surprise when the economy hits a speed bump that you're going to have a lot more uh, defaults. Uh, we have seen a net increase in regulation under the Bush years. Uh, so I hope that Christian's – if McCain somehow wins, I hope he's wrong that when he says McCain wants to accelerate the Bush agenda because the Bush agenda has been more spending and more regulation. I don't think it's worked well for Bush. I don't think it will work well for McCain. I don't think it will work well for Obama. Yeah, I think the no, – no, I, I actually agree with Dan on some points. Uh, but okay, let, let me retract that. <laughs> uh, it's rare. But um, I, I think – I. I let me also disagree here a little bit. Um, we, we clearly have gone over the ledge a long time ago in terms of letting the financial markets finance too much housing, letting the standards go down. But I think we knew that that was going to happen, um, that when, when regulators know – when financial institutions know that everybody else is doing the same thing, we're overlending, we're lowering standards, you ultimately have a too-big-to-fail problem. It doesn't have to be the Fannie Mae and Freddie Macs, the giants of the market who are doing it. It just needs to be enough smaller institutions doing the same thing. And 
I, I think people knew that. You've got to remember that early before even the subprime crisis started, before the bubble started, um, Alan Greenspan already talked about froth in the market. And that was the time when government should have stepped in, had forced institutions to open their books, forced mortgage brokers to actually have some fiduciary standards and to ultimately control it. And I think that's the biggest problem, that the problem was known well before actually something was done. And I think the regulators, Dan is right, we had laws against fraud, we had regulatory oversight in place, and it could have been exercised. And I think that's the biggest shortcoming here. That's right here. Hi, I'm Penny Starr with cnsnews.com. This is for Mr. Weller. I wanted to know if you could expand on how Obama would provide tax relief for low-income Americans when low-income Americans don't pay any taxes. It's a number of tax credits that he actually is proposing. Um, and you know what? I have to actually look at this. So, But that's basically what it is, an expansion of the earned income tax credit. It's an expansion of the child credit. I believe it's an expansion of the savers credit. But on that one, I really um, wouldn't want to be specific. Um, so the, the, largest, the largest chunk here is from the earned income tax credit, which is usually how you expand uh, tax for the non – for those who don't have – you've got to remember, they don't have uh, personal income tax liabilities. They do have payroll tax liabilities. Yeah, the, the earned income tax credit is a credit. Um, they don't get the payroll tax back. Okay, right here. Yes, I want to thank you all for having the event today. My name is Arnold King, and uh, my question to you, Mr. Mitchell, is: uh, How did we get the worst tax rate in America? I mean, another question: Do you all support a national innovation foundation? Well, uh, I don't know what the National Innovation Foundation is, so I can't really respond to that. But how did we get the highest corporate tax rate or actually second highest corporate tax rate in the world, I think was your first part? Uh, Actually, we didn't really do anything to get that. Uh, All countries in the developed world used to have very high tax rates. One of the great things about tax competition is that the average top personal tax rate in the developed world has come down from 67 percent to about 42 percent, and the average corporate tax rate in the developed world has come down from 48 percent to 28 percent. What's happened is that we lowered our corporate tax rate way back during the 1986 Tax Reform Act to, I think, 33, and then Clinton put it up by one point. So we basically stood still while the rest of the world has been racing to cut tax rates. A lot of you may be familiar with how Ireland went from being the sick men of Europe to the Celtic Tiger by lowering their corporate rate from 50 to 12.5%. Well, all these other countries are doing the same thing. And so even France and Sweden, Germany, just this last year lowered their corporate tax rate by 9 percentage points. We're seeing all these flat taxes in Eastern Europe all this tax cutting going on because of tax competition. And so even though we haven't been raising our corporate tax rate, we're falling behind because other countries are doing these pro-growth reforms because they understand in a globalized economy, we just can't afford the class warfare tax policy anymore. I mean, back in the 1970s, it was a mistake to have high tax rates, but the damage was limited because the world economy wasn't that integrated. Now that the world economy is so integrated, the economic damage of high tax rates is exponentially larger. Let me jump in on the corporate tax rate discussion here. This is the fun life of an economist. I actually looked at this. I didn't completely read it. It's a report from the Department of Treasury and Competitive Tax Policy. Part of it is, yes, we have comparatively high tax rates, but the problem is we have lots of loopholes. So our total tax base is actually fairly small. 
So relative to our GDP, we're collecting one of the lowest corporate tax income revenues. Um, so I, I think that's called the Laffer curve. That's okay. Well, we're discussing that another time. Um, so the 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 part here is that it's okay to lower tax rates, but at the same time, we, we want to get rid of all the gaming and the inefficiencies in the corporate tax system. And I think that's the part uh, where I think Mr. McCain should clarify where he stands, and especially if he lowers the tax rate, it's fine. Lower the tax rate, but then say, okay, which loops holds? How are you going to close them? How are you going to make actually the corporate tax system much more efficient? How you level the playing field between the big guys and the small guys, um, those who can pay the accountants to take advantage of all the loopholes and those who can't? And I think that's one of the big questions. As I said, the corporate tax rates mattered less than the actual tax burden, which is the corporate tax revenue that we have relative to GDP, which is one of the lowest in the OECD. Um, is there anybody from the, the press who would like to ask a, ask a question? Yes, down here. Uh, Chia Chen, freelance correspondent, Bethesda Mellon. Uh, Dr. James, uh, you mentioned that uh, both of them uh, support uh, farm subsidies. But let's. Uh, oh, both of them, sorry? Did you support? Um, yeah. No. No, McCain does not support farm subsidies. Okay. And uh, so uh, Obama support, or both not support? Uh, I've not heard him ever oppose them, but he certainly supports them. He did not vote for the 2008 farm bill, but he indicated that he supports them. Okay. Uh, Support or not support, the the U.S. uh, uh, farming policy is uh, very important uh, for the world trade. I would like to, we have three doctors here, uh, provide uh, what the U.S. uh, farmer uh, policy should be uh, to both of them. And also that, uh, Dr. Weather, you mentioned that uh, uh, Obama is uh, uh, one to uh, include uh, uh, safety and health environment in the trade agreement. But there's uh, no... In the reality, nobody could talk about it. So I don't think uh, uh, Obama have uh, any way to do it. And I also would like to suggest uh, 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 the three doctors here uh, provide the prescription uh, for both of them how to deal with that in the reality. Maybe, maybe we could focus in on the farm policy. Maybe Christian and Sally could just briefly summarize what what the next president should do about U.S. agricultural policy? It's a difficult one, uh, both from a political and economic perspective. I I think farm subsidies are certainly one of the obstacles to increased development in many countries. Um, But um, it's a double-edged sword. We often say, okay, well, the the debate is often framed of let's reduce – if we reduce subsidies in the U.S., we also have to lower entry barriers in other countries, in developing countries. And I think that ultimately gives producers in developing countries a raw deal because you're opening up then bar- markets um, where small-scale farmers in developing and emerging countries simply cannot compete with major agribusiness. And we're really not – when we talk about U.S. agriculture, we're not really talking mom-and-pop farms. We're talking really major agribusiness. So I, I think – 
the, this is a discussion that needs to happen at the multilateral level because I don't think there is any politician in the U.S. who can realistically say, oh, I'm going to sub- reduce the subsidies for farms here in the U.S., but I'm not going to get anything for agribusiness on the international front. But I think from an international development perspective, the, car- the way it's currently framed is detrimental to producers. Um, in, in emerging economies. Now, let me also talk about labor and environmental standards and how they could be included in trade agreements. To be honest, until Sally, Dan, and I agree that there needs to be a trade agreement and we treat, agree on some kind of ground rules, um, in, I mean us metaphorically in terms of progressives and conservatives and libertarians, uh, I don't think you're going to see much of a revival of a trade agenda. Um, all I can tell, most people think the U.S. trade agenda at this point is dead, uh, for various political reasons. So until there is a clear agreement, okay, well, we're going to move forward, we're going to include labor and environmental standards just like we include, for instance, intellectual property rights, then there has to be discussion whether you're going to have some enforcement mechanisms under the WTO or whether you're going to leave it to the ILO. Um, I, I think that's a lot of – we're a long way off from ultimately making this a reality. But I believe that Mr. Senator Obama and his team will push in that direction, but it's going to be a long uh, uphill battle. Okay, I will start with farm subsidies. I disagree with Christian in that it's a difficult issue. I think it's very simple. I think we remove all subsidies now. We should have done it 70 years ago, but let's cut our losses here. Uh, I think we should lower our trade barriers to imports of agricultural products from wherever they come, developing, developed, immediately as well. So I think it's actually quite, on an economic level, quite simple. Politically, I agree it's, it's going to be difficult. Um, as far as the effect of uh, American subsidies on poor people abroad, it's true that agricultural exporters suffer, but net importers actually gain from, from subsidies because they artificially lower the price. So at an economic, I'm not, I'm not advocating them, but at an, at an economic level, net importers actually gain from that. Um, as I, so, yeah, just on farm policy, I think it's very simple. We should just do away with it, both of them. I would give the same advice to, to both candidates. Uh, on labour and environmental standards, I just I, I question not, not the motives of Senator Obama in advocating them to lift uh, living standards abroad. I just I question the logic of that because the reason poor people have lower standards in labour and environmental areas is because they are poorer and the best way to lift them out of poverty is allow them to trade and if the reason you restrict them from trading is because of their standards are not up to your own then it's going to work against your uh, ostensible goal of live of rising of, of raising living standards overseas and i believe you wanted to yeah i'm not an expert on this issue but let me just cite one thing i always look at real world evidence and so when you're talking about things like agricultural subsidies uh You can look at Europe with their common agricultural policy and how expensive that is, how it hurts uh, people in the developing world. Or you can look at a country like New Zealand, which is sort of like Australia but without the convict background. Uh, And New Zealand Zealand completely eliminated their farm subsidies years ago, and it was great news not only for New Zealand taxpayers but also for New Zealand's agricultural sector. Whenever you're looking at any of these issues, tax, budget – agriculture, labor policy, the world is a laboratory, and that laboratory shows that the lower government approach works a lot better. Let me jump in for one second on a trade and growth part. Um, The research that's often cited comes from the World Bank, and it's very questionable in its methodology, um, especially since the findings link 
trade to growth over very long periods of time and ignores the upheaval and the dynamics that happen in the middle. Nobody on the Obama campaign, to my knowledge, I, I'm not part of the campaign, uh, and nobody of the progressive economists I talk to says that we, don't, we shouldn't trade. Um, it is beneficial for us for many industries. In the U.S., we have the majority of our trade is in, in manufacturing, for instance. Our manufacturing sector could benefit from exports. But we need to level the playing field, and we need to do what we can through policies to minimize the dislocations that are often very harmful to the poor in developing countries and emerging economies. And again, it's like, do you take a 50-year view, or do you care what happens to people in the next five years? Uh, how about in back there? I'm Christopher Hunt. I'm unaffiliated. My question's for uh, Mr. Mitchell. I guess following up on uh, some of what Mr. Weller said about the deficit, I remember your um, numbers about the big difference in proposed spending between Barack Obama and John McCain. And I was wondering if um, you computed similar figures, because you also talked about Barack Obama having a much greater plan for increasing taxes and McCain for lowering them. And I was wondering if you'd computed figures of kind of the net change in the uh, government's income uh, or whether you thought that was uh, as important to the discussion. Uh, I, I don't think it's as, as, as important for the discussion. I worry a lot about how government spending misallocates resources in the economy and leads to corruption in Washington. I worry a lot about how the tax code is burdensome and high marginal tax rates hurt uh, productive behavior. Uh, but budget deficits are much lower on my scale. If budget deficits were what mattered, then we should trade places with Sweden because they actually have a budget surplus right now. Now, government, the burden of government is over 50 percent of GDP. Whereas in the United States, the burden of government is a little bit over 30 percent of GDP. Do I want to trade places with Sweden just because they have a surplus? No. I mean, the, the average disposable income in Sweden is only about 60 to 65 percent of the U.S. level. I don't want a much bigger burden of government if it happens that that gives us a budget surplus. I don't think budget deficits are good. But I think it's a, a relatively small issue compared to the real problem, which is if the tax burden is too high, if the burden of government spending is too high, that's where your economy suffers. Milton Friedman said years ago, better to have a trillion-dollar budget with a $200 billion deficit than a $2 trillion budget that's balanced. I see no reason to update his great thinking on the issue. Let, let me just jump in very quickly. These weren't my numbers. This is from the Tax Policy Center over at Urban and Brookings. Um, and as I said, the numbers is $3.3 trillion for, me, for Obama, $4.3 trillion in addition uh, to Mr. McCain. Uh, the, the Senator uh, McCain's plan are somewhat understated because there's a lot of phase-ins of the tax cuts, whereas Mr. Obama's would come out uh, immediately. So the number is likely larger. Um, on the do deficits matter front, they do matter. Um, but it depends on what kind of deficits they are. If they're temporary uh, cyclical deficits, they probably don't have that much of an effect. The long-term sustained deficits that we've had over the last few years certainly have kept interest rates high. Just to give you evidence, the Federal Reserve Bank has cut interest rates since January very aggressively. Long-term rates have gone up. Um, and that, I think, ultimately, and Dan is right, we need to have a discussion what's going on in monetary policy and how our fiscal policy ultimately impedes our ability to use monetary policy effectively. Uh, I understand we have somebody in the first floor conference room who has a question. Do you have to take the microphone up there, Carl? Yes. Okay. 
Uh, why don't we take a question here, and then we'll go to the uh, first floor conference room. Um, yes, in the front row and back there. Ravaz Ardisher, Council on Hemispheric Affairs. Uh, this question's for Ms. James. Uh, you talked about uh, trade agreements and even disagreeing with how the current administration is writing trade agreements. Um, but it sounds like you still wouldn't ever be against uh, a trade agreement. Um, as far as NAFTA goes, it, I don't think that Obama would actually pull out of of NAFTA. It just sounds like he's playing electoral politics. Uh, but are you, is there any circumstance that you would be for that that you would be um, advocating a renegotiation of NAFTA given the known flaws that it has? Um, I'll take your last question first. Uh, I could imagine renegotiating or advocating a renegotiation of NAFTA if it was just one sentence long, there shall be free trade, full stop. That I would favour if we could renegotiate that. Um, and, and that goes to answering the first question you had, which is what was my problem with the free trade agreements as, as written? And, and I agree with Obama's statement, if not his implication, that the free trade agreements that have been written are kind of this big and they're filled with, phase, filled with phase-ins and opt-outs. And, and, and I'm, I'm a unilateralist total free trader, so I, I would prefer that they be more simple. Uh, having said that, um, I can see me being against a free trade agreement if the trade diversion was uh, outweighed its trade creation. Um, I don't know enough about the economics of the ones on the table to say whether we are confronted with that, but I think it's true that something like, say, a South Korean free trade agreement um, would be much more trade creating than some of the smaller ones we've seen. But um, my, my default is to uh, be in favour of them uh, unless I see evidence that they're going to be diverting trade. I, I want to oh, jump in on the, um, on the issue of electoral politics. Um, I, I think what you read from the Obama campaign is clearly a statement that they look at the policies over, let's say, the last 10, 15 years and say, like, look, yes, we've opened some markets, we've created some efficiencies, but we've also created a massive trade deficit. And we have created alarmist inequities. You would expect rising inequality with greater trade. That's what basic trade models say. Ultimately, we pay a heavy price for that inequality on a domestic level, as I said before. So I, I think uh, it's too easy to dismiss what Mr. Mc Senator Obama is saying as electoral politics. I think he and his advisors have seriously looked at the issue, found, as far as I can tell, that there are flaws in there. There is a better way of trading with a world that actually creates a much more stable U.S. economy and a much more stable world economy. And to give it a slightly different – give a different policy a try uh, in the next uh, administration, and I think – it's uh, too easy to dismiss this as electoral politics to play to voters in the Midwest. Uh, I think we're ready. We'll, we're going to hear this disembodied voice down here, but I think we're ready to take a question from the first floor conference room. Is that right? Okay, I guess not. We'll, we'll work on the technology. Uh, yes, right there. Thank you. I am... I am I'm not affiliated with any group or political group, and I'm an independent. And and I would I haven't heard. And, and this is to Mr. Mitchell and Mr. Weller. Um, 
I, I think it is important that there is a deficit, that we need to look at this budget deficit, because when you talk about the federal government paying it off, it's us taxpayers. So I haven't heard any of you talk about the increase in the euro and the decrease in the American dollar and banks now in trouble and going out of business because of the mortgage crisis. Are we headed for another SNL bailout? We're already bailing out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But what about the importance when it comes to trade, when it comes to um, business overseas, or have you? And, and neither candidate is certainly talking about the deficit or how they're going to handle it. What about the increase in the euro, the decrease in the American dollar, and what impact this will have on the American banks and banks abroad? Well, that is a tough question, and, and certainly in terms of analyzing yeah, what, the, what, what the candidates say about it, they're not really saying anything about it, so all you're probably going to get is just me and Christian giving our sort of just rambling <laughs> thoughts on it. But I, I specialize in rambling thoughts, so let me give it a shot. Uh, there are two reasons why we may have seen this big change in the dollar-euro uh, exchange rate. One is that we're following too easy of a policy, and two – the uh, European Central Bank is following too tight of a policy. And uh, uh, I'm prone, I'm more in the camp of thinking that we've been a little bit too easy. There's been political pressure on the Fed to maintain artificially low interest rates because politicians like that. There are more borrowers than lenders. Uh, and I think that, of course, then bleeds over into the exchange rate changing. And, of course, that does then have an effect on trade. I'm not one who thinks a trade deficit matters. The flip side of a trade deficit is a capital surplus. But if we keep driving down the value of the dollar, it makes it very cheap for foreigners to in invest in the U.S. economy. So artificially, they're going to wind up using their dollars to buy uh, assets in the U.S. economy rather than to buy goods and services, I'd rather somehow figure out how to have a stable monetary policy so that market forces determine how many dollars come back in the form of investment versus how many dollars come back in the form of purchasing goods and services. But it, I will confess it's, it's a very naughty, difficult issue. Economists used to always worry about, well, how do we estimate the demand for money. We thought we had a good idea of the supply of money, and now we're not even sure we have a good way of measuring the supply of money. So it's one of these issues where I'm uncharacteristically a little bit modest in my assertions. Uh, Christian's not a modest guy, though. He'll tell us what the, what the answer oh, is. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> I would just encourage um, – I, I think in the short run, Dan is right. I think the different approaches to monetary policies do have a small effect um, and certainly, but you've got to remember that the valuation of the dollar started in early 2002. In the middle of this, we actually had rising interest rates. Um, so I, I think to just simply say it's monetary policies and difference in the monetary policies is a little too easy. People have been moving out of the dollar for quite some time. Um, part of it is that they, a lot of investors thought they had too much money in spent, for in particular the Japanese, had been moving out of the dollar since 2001. Um, there's different reasons why they do it. Uh, largely, they were not diversified, Japan in particular, but also China. And you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. But the other part is I think foreigners have become very worried about the outlook for the U.S. economy. They can look at the same numbers that we do. And the, the basic indication for me that things were going in the wrong direction is if you look at household debt relative to disposable income. That number is now at 132 percent. And has risen four times faster since 2001 than it did before. That stuff has to be paid back or people default, and that's exactly what's happening now. Now, if you're a smart investor in, Wall in, Washington, uh, in, in London, Frankfurt, or Tokyo, you know that eventually there's a slowdown coming, and you're gradually diver di diversifying outside, out of the dollar, and I think that's been happening for quite some time. So I think if we want to get the dollar back on track, which certainly may be a good policy, 
ultimately, given what's happening with commodity prices, we do need to invest in a stronger economy and recreate confidence in the U.S. economy among international investors. Okay, we have time for uh, perhaps one or two more questions. Yes, down uh, down in front here. I am Damian Brady with the National Taxpayers Union Foundation. I want to thank you for, for setting our figures on the cost of uh, McCain's and Obama's agendas. And I want to clarify that this is based on their campaign promises, not necessarily the bills okay. that they sponsored in Congress. That's a different study. And I had a question. Um, to, to what extent do you think the benefits of McCain's uh, lowering of the corporate tax cut will be negated by the cap-and-trade plan, which is going to put in a, a brand-new tax on certain industries to, to pay for the, the pollution credits? Uh, in some sense, I have to dodge that. Uh, we have a couple of experts here, Jerry Taylor and Pat Michaels, who could uh, probably give you hours of, uh, of explanation for why they think some of these regulatory initiatives are, are going to not pass a cost-benefit test, to put it mildly. Uh, in terms of uh, McCain's lower corporate tax rate uh, – I have to agree with Christian that you know, we haven't gotten all the details. Uh, you know, what is McCain planning on doing to the corporate tax base? Is he going to get rid of special loopholes like the ethanol credit and things like that? I worry that we, he may actually go in the other direction and put in more loopholes that would be part of, of a cap-and-trade approach. Uh, I will simply note on corporate taxes, and again, the world is the laboratory. When Ireland had a corporate tax rate of 50 percent, corporate tax revenues were 1.3 percent of GDP, and GDP was very small and depressed. Now their corporate tax rate's down to 12.5 percent. GDP is enormously larger, and they're collecting more than 3 percent of GDP in corporate tax revenue. Now, Ireland's a small economy inside the European Union, so I wouldn't want to pretend that we would replicate those exact uh, results at all. Uh, you know, the, the whole principle of the Laffer curve isn't that tax cuts pay for themselves. That only happens in very rare cases. The principle of the Laffer curve is that when you lower tax rates, you encourage some level of additional economic activity. And we're certainly seeing that around the world, not only when there are lower corporate tax rates, but lower personal rates and the 25 flat tax jurisdictions uh, that we now have. And so in part, I think a lower corporate tax rate would be somewhat self-financing. I would hope McCain would go back to his reputation of being the anti-pork barrel politician and reduce the burden of government. Unfortunately, he so far is not being Ronald Reagan saying we need to shut down some of these departments that clearly have not done a good job. Let me just jump in. I, I just simply can't refuse. <laughs> Ireland? So you want to have checks from France and Germany to help your economy? Now I couldn't resist that one. Um, largely, the Irish economy has boomed because it was a net recipient of money from the EU that was sponsored. But, but Christian, uh, Greece and Portugal got even more checks from Brussels, and they haven't done well at all. They've done reasonably well. Uh, let me talk about cap and trade. Um, the, the big point about cap and trade, the full effect on cap and trade, will ultimately depend to some degree on um, how you're going to allocate the funding, um, the, the revenue from there. So. And that's the part we don't know yet. Um, Senator McCain has not said what he's going to do with the revenue that would come from attack, the cap-and-trade proposal. And then I think that's a question that I think reporters and analysts really need to ask off the campaign. Well, we've uh, covered a lot of ground here today, and I appreciate you all coming. Uh, how about one final uh, round of applause for our speakers? I'd, I'd invite you all to continue the discussion upstairs, uh, enjoying our complimentary lunch. Thank you very much for coming.